This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Welcome to the Investors First Podcast, a service of CFA Society Orlando. We're here to educate investors, advisors, and consultants through conversations with some of the top finance and investment professionals from around the world. Learn more about us at cfasociety.org slash Orlando. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of 2023. We're kicking off the year with a banger. Our guest today is Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer of DoubleLine. In today's episode... Sherman shares how he views the investment landscape as we kick off a new year. He touches on inflation, interest rates, whether or not he expects a Fed pivot, and where he sees opportunity in the market today, specifically the credit markets. Our co-hosts today are Steve Curley and myself, Colby Donovan. Before we get to the episode, I want to make sure if you're in Central Florida, you're aware of some upcoming events you're more than welcome to come to. On January 11th, we have a global market update breakfast. On February 2nd, we have the second annual Global Golf Tournament at the Winter Park Golf Course. And on February 8th, we have the 2023 annual dinner at the All Fond Inn. Once again, that's January 11th for a global market update breakfast, February 2nd for the golf tournament, and February 8th for the annual dinner. And registration for the annual dinner is open today. To learn more, go to cfasociety.org backslash Orlando. Enough from me. Let's get to the episode with today's guest, Jeffrey Sherman. Sherman, thanks for joining us today. Hey, great to be here. I was surprised when I heard earlier this year that Steve came back from Future Proof and said that some of the double line folks may be joining us in Florida and identifying as Florida men these days. I don't know if we can make the moniker any worse than the people call it Florida man out there too. But it is true. We did relocate our headquarters to Tampa, Florida this year. So we are inherently Florida men and women now as well. I like it. What spurred the move? If you're not aware with what's going on in California, there's a lot of things that weren't going in the right direction. And so our headquarters were actually never really in downtown Los Angeles. And so we were looking for a place to have another presence and again, just spread things out. And so looking at a different part of the country. East Coast was something we're looking at. And we went with the non-traditional route of choosing Tampa, Florida. Well, I think a lot of people are picking Tampa, Florida these days, smartly so. You guys are close, just across the way a bit. Yeah, just a 45-hour drive on I-4 to get 100 miles over there (laughs) (laughs) through the Disney traffic. A lot of fun. Well, there's a hell of a lot going on in the world today. Listeners, we're recording this on December 19th, just so you kind of have a frame of reference. I just would love to start with what is top of mind for you today as you look out at the world as we get ready to start 2023. What's top of mind is what's transpired in 2022, really. If you think about where 2022 is going to end up, it's pretty much going to be a reversal of all the successes in 2021 or what were failures this year. And some of the things that didn't work very well last year are the things that started to rebound. So whether that's a transition to like value investing over growth, some of the commodity areas as well, although they did start running towards the end of last year. But you've just seen kind of this dynamic where all of a sudden now with inflation on everyone's lips, not just on their lips, but also in the data, 
being somewhat pervasive throughout the bulk of this year, it obviously caused a repricing of the price of money. And so as we look forward, I think that the price of money is going to be very important as it always is. It sets the basis for that. When I talk about the price of money, Colby, I'm saying interest rates here in the US. That's the price of money, what it costs to lend and setting that base for risk-taking and how to allocate capital based upon it. When we start to think about next year, it's trying to balance out the outlook here where we know that growth is inherently slowing. It's pretty undeniable, but also we were coming off of record levels of growth to we overshot to the upside. So it's not shocking to see growth rates that are below trend average here this year. The question is, do they remain at below trend or they dip negative next year? Can the Fed engineer the soft landing and try to skirt this massive recession? And at the same time, as an investor, you got to think about, are you being compensated for some of those recessionary risks? And so I would say that parts of the markets definitely do reflect those conditions. We'll obviously probably talk about this today, but there's other parts that look very rich relative to that, where we've had this really panacea, I'd say over the last, let's call it six to eight weeks, where the market has changed the price of money in the face of the Fed. We've had a big rally in interest rates and it's provided this big risk on trade, although it didn't work last week, but collectively we're significantly off the lows of the year in most risk assets. And so some probably went a little farther than they should. Potentially, rates are in this kind of no man's land right here. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in detail. But as I think about what's on top of mind, it's, okay, how do we work through positioning, knowing that we're going to have a very challenging year next year? It's not challenged from investing. It's just challenged from the uncertainty and the direction that investors are going to want to tilt their portfolios. So that's where I'm starting this, this last week and a half of the markets trying to be reflective and think about what it means for next year. And I can tell you maybe towards the end how we're positioned and thinking about that for next year. Where do you stand on the whole Fed changing their 2% target? I thought it was interesting when Powell was asked, would he consider changing it to four? He said, we're not going to consider that under any circumstances, quote unquote. Under any circumstances, not going to be done. That usually means they're about to do it. We have a joke around <laughs> double up. Whenever it says that this can never happen, that means it's imminent. Thinking about raising rates or whatever that was too. Yeah. And then very soon. I thought that was him having a sense of humor. You know, that or he sits around and doesn't think about thinking about things. I thought it was <laughs> him having a sense of humor from last year, being self-referential. I think right now, if you think about what the Fed's done, they were obviously behind the curve on inflation. They have egg in their face from the whole transitory thing. We all make jokes about the word transitory. The use of the word transitory is indeed transitory because no one knows what the timeline of transitory means. But before we get into the known unknowns and everything get super wonky, which I know Steve knows I can do very well. But as you think about what the Fed's experiment was here is that they tried a new policy that I believe they fell flat on their face with. And a lot of people will say, well, that it's just that they missed inflation. They didn't miss inflation. Remember, they changed their framework. They went to average inflation targeting. And so this concept that we have to make up for the ills of our lack of 2% inflation over whatever time period you want to look back, what's the look back window? That was always going to be the joke about the average inflation. But I think that the Fed wanted a higher rate of inflation to cure some of those ills we had seen for the last few years prior to 2021. And so I think the postmortem on this will be that 
you're never going to hear from the Fed about average inflation targeting again. Because again, they saw the inflation genie get out of the bottle and noticed that it was very hard to come back. But again, from a lot of market punditry, it wasn't surprising. We had extraordinary policies, both fiscally and on the monetary side. The Fed was too loose for too long. And forget just the level of interest rates. They bought bonds for way too long. They should have stopped in the summer of 2021. And remember, Colby, if you think about it, I like to remind investors of this. You know, the last time the Fed purchased bonds on their balance sheet, it was actually March of 2022. So nine months ago, they were still buying bonds. Yes, they stopped it. They started hiking rates, but it was too loose for too long. And so this concept that today or last week at the press conference that Jay Powell's going to go, you know what? Yes, we're going to move our inflation target. We feel like we're doing a good job. We're just going to target six now. Mission accomplished, right? We can put the banner up. We'll get on an aircraft carrier and celebrate. Yeah, flex on them. Drop my, do whatever you want to do to say we're winning. But do you think that it bolsters Fed credibility today to say, yes, we want to raise our inflation target to 3%. I think the market would revolt right now because, okay, one, you may feel that, okay, it's going to be positive for risk assets short term because it's like, oh, the Fed's closer to a pivot, it's closer to a pause because obviously three is closer than two. So at six today on core CPI, and they're using PCE, which is probably going to print this week on the low five, maybe a high four handle at this print. But if you take a look at that, and all of a sudden, they just get closely objective. I think it flies in the face of what they're trying to do, which is indeed fight inflation. Now, we can argue on whether they're ahead of the curve now or they're being way too restrictive. And likely, they are being very restrictive at these levels. But this concept that they're going to just reverse course all of a sudden, say three is the new two, that's what we're going to target going for. It's just way premature for that to happen. I think where the Fed recants on this is that after a couple of years, if we get inflation stubbornly above 3% and it stays there, and let's just say there's no ills and no side effects, which potentially there could be, but let's say that everything kind of goes along, we go back to trend line growth, but we do it with a 3% inflation rate, I can see the Fed changing course at that point in time. Because remember, the way we get out of this debt burden is through nominal growth. And so that is some smattering of inflation and growth together. So when you think about this idea of the average inflation target, that's essentially what they were trying to do. They were trying to bring back into the lexicon something before average inflation target, they talked about nominal GDP targeting. This was the rage in the 20 teens that this was going to be the new model for central banks around the world. And so now I think some of those ideas probably go away just because of this inflation problem we've had for the last, let's call it 18 to 24 months now. So not only was inflation transitory, but their measurement of inflation is transitory. It's going to go away now. It's so funny because we look at a lot of financial history and we look at data and we say, oh, this is what happened in that environment. And you really don't have a feel for it. This is why people value experience a lot of times over education. You need both in this world to be successful. But there's a premium on experience because especially in the financial markets, there's something about the feel. I heard from young analysts, oh, I wish I was working in 2008 and 2009 so I could experience that. So I would know what it's like and I can feel that. And I'm like, well, here's 2022. It's worse because at least we had the ups and the downs. This is just the downs and the downs and the downs and the slow grind. And it's just the reset of things and it takes time to reset. And so 
there's something about that emotional intelligence that you experience through having your own experiences too. And they always say the wise man learns from other people's mistakes, but sometimes you have to go through it yourself. And I think that the ills we've seen with a lot of this is just the bad experience now. And so on a go forward basis, I think the policies, they're going to continue to change. But where I was going with all that is that we look through the annals of history and we say, okay, this is what happened in that environment. This is the way they behave. But unless you were actually in that, you were watching the screens, you were trading, you don't get a good feel for actually how bad things were at those point in times. And that's why policies change. So what I'm getting at is that the yardsticks will change. We're not going to be committed to a 2% inflation target for the rest of our lives. Remember when quantitative easing was an extraordinary event? Now it's just extraordinary. Break down the words. It's a super ordinary thing. It's one of the tools now. And so again, there's always an evolution here. And so I think you'll see the same thing with the Fed and the way they look at data. But I don't expect them to reverse course any point soon because they are staunchly committed to at least having the perception of being inflation fighters. And right now, it's at all costs. Sherman, you brought up QE and now QT. As far as attribution analysis and breaking that down in terms of the restrictive goal that the Fed has, how do you break down what the impact of QT is versus the rate increases? It's difficult because no one really knows. And I think that's the right answer. And maybe someone smarter than me will give you the quant model for what the attribution looks like here. But a lot of people have postulated certain levels of QE, and they did it in nominal terms, led to a certain level of reduction in interest rates. And the famous study came out of the, I believe it was the Atlanta Fed. There was two economists there named Wu and Shaw. And they created the Wu Shaw time series, where what they did is they created this equivalency argument. And what I mean by equivalency is they said, okay, once rates hit the lower bound, aka zero, this is before people were pursuing negative interest rates, by the way, across central banks. So when it hits the lower bound, if you're doing quantitative easing, X amount of dollars leads to Y number of basis points and reduction in that effective Fed funds rate. And so there were estimates saying during QE2 and the likes and QE3 that our effective Fed funds rate, not real, but in nominal terms, again, given this adjustment equivalency, was like minus 300 basis points. And you saw something like in Europe when they were negative and applying the same logic there was like negative 700 basis points or so. And it has some rhyme and reason, but I don't know if it can actually be done just on nominal dollars. I kind of feel like it has to be a percentage of GDP or something out there, a percentage of money supply or the flow. I don't have my framework. I got too many other things to worry about than come up with this new framework for this. But that said, I have to think that the converse is true. If we are reducing the amount of liquidity in the market, it has to be tightening. So I think the effective Fed funds rate is higher than what you see there due to the QT. I think it's cute though, and I'll say it's cute, that the Fed keeps talking about, we're going to continue to unwind $95 billion a month. And I'm like, you're barely getting the treasuries off. You can get the treasuries off the 60 billion from there. You can get those off over the next, what is it, 65 billion? Sorry. Is it 65? I'm wrong. It's 60. Anyway, point being, what's $5 billion a month? A lot of billions. It's what Elon blows up a week on Twitter. But that being said, if you look at the amount that they're actually reducing, it's close to that treasury number than the aggregate number because the mortgage they own just don't have a fast prepayment speed because they own such low coupon mortgages and who's trying to refinance their 3% mortgage at a current rate of six and a half today. So that kind of natural attrition just isn't there. But it's cute though that the Fed claims that they're still doing the 95 billion a month. That's just the beauty of it. I mean, 
it's only in the government. Can you claim you're doing something and not actually deliver on it? But to that point, Steve, it could be a lot more restrictive is where I'm going with this. So not only could we have 425 basis points of hikes, and by the way, what was just eight months, or I guess it was nine technically, but by the time it's leaked into the system, it's the fastest rate hike path we've ever seen in the history of the Federal Reserve in the post-World War II era. It is restrictive. The QT is out there. I think that's why you're seeing challenges with liquidity in general. And that's the goal. Restrictive policy is meant to be restrictive. And this is where I scratch my head, too, because the first question that Steve Leisman asked at the press conference last week was that, how do you rationalize the rate move you've seen in the yield curve? You've seen anywhere between 70 or I guess it's 60, like 85 basis points across the curve rally since you met. And he's saying, well, we don't control that part of the market. It's like, that's convenient, isn't it? You don't control that part of the market. But when you're doing QE, you sure as hell control that part of the market. You bought where you wanted to buy across the curve. I find it's a little disingenuous. But at the same time, can you imagine going up there and answering questions for 45 minutes about the same thing? I mean, Powell's a great actor. I mean, he pretty much said, we're fine inflation. There's some improvements in it. We're not declaring victory yet. Time to move on. We're going to be more restrictive. The bond market said, no, you're not. The bond market rallied that day. Infinitesimally small, but it rallied nonetheless. And so this is why I say it's a very conflicting year. I'm listening to the Fed chairman tell me they're hiking. He's saying they're going to north of 5%. The dot plots imply it. And as a lot of people say, they're just forecasts. But these forecasts keep getting ratcheting up as they're moving rates up. But the bond market says, no, you're not. So it's going to be this battle here for a little bit. And the thing about it is the Fed now has essentially inverted the entire curve. And by doing so, that is a definite sign that policy is very restrictive, irrespective of your outlook on inflation and everything out there. The bond market is telling you that the Fed is very restrictive. Doesn't mean that they're too restrictive, but they are definitely in restrictive territory. And therefore, it's one of those things where it's going to cause some slowdown across things. We've already seen it. I mean, Powell even references the interest rate sensitive sectors are the ones most affected by this. Well, isn't that the goal? If you're messing with interest rates, isn't it to affect the interest rate sensitive sectors? And so you asked about QT. So it's just saying that if it has to be some reversal, this attribution, I don't know what it looks like, but I know that it's not accretive to the overall market. Sherman, I know you're going into an investment committee meeting right after this. Is there any way you could give our audience a sense of what you're thinking? I know I've heard you in the past say, people joke about, don't talk your book. We want you to talk your book. We want to know what your book looks like. We want to know what you're thinking. So what's a sample of what it's going to look like in your investment committee meeting in 30 minutes? From that standpoint, the whole talking your book thing, I think it's a bad rap. We run close to $100 billion. Do you think us talking our book is going to move the market today? You think it's going to pile people into our trades? The talking your book is usually something about you have a very low float interest security that you're essentially trying to pump and dump. So this whole talking your book thing, I've never understood because investors need to know how you're positioned. That's the whole point here. And it's not just how you're positioned, but why. And so right now, the big debate that we are having internally, it is a debate because what we're trying to figure out is... What does the slowdown look like? I don't think anyone's arguing for an expansionary market next year that we're going to go back to the raw, raw days of 3 and 4% growth. Heck, we're not even going to get to trend line, which is like 2.3 post GFC. And so we're just not going to get there. 
It's not that we're on a debate of, is it going to be expansionary? It's just, is it a slowdown? Is it a recession? Is it mild? Is it deeper? Where is the carnage? And so we don't have an answer to that today, Steve. What we do have an answer is that there are certain sectors of the market that are going to be challenged. The obvious one is real estate, and that's going to be both residential and commercial. You're already seeing some signs of residential showing some cracks, even in Tampa, where cracks, it's like, okay, look, interest rates are significantly higher. Mortgage spreads are probably too wide relative to treasuries. If you think about 30-year fix is keyed off the 10-year, we're talking about like a 360-ish 10-year today, and we're sitting here, mortgage rates at six and a half. They're probably too wide relative to that. Why are they wide? Because look, banks are nervous about lending. Rates went up really quickly. By the time they lock you in, they want to make sure they can still get their spread and all this stuff. And so I think the real estate and some of the knock-on effects there are blatantly obvious. I don't think anyone here is calling for a massive bull market in real estate over the next 24 months. The commercial real estate market looks a little challenged. They're still the same players that were pre-pandemic, things like retail. We have a new cohort of property type that looks a little challenged, which is obviously office. But there's still bright spots in there. There's multifamily, which can plug some of this gap. The industrial space has been the bright darling during some of this. It's having a little bit of challenges because of some of the overproduction there. But those things are interest rate sensitive parts of the market. But we also have things that there's short duration corporates, there's short duration securitized assets that they're fixed rate finance. They're good. They have low interest coverage. They have good collateral types underneath them. And they have the ability to just essentially pay you back, even in a default environment. It's trying to think about what credit can survive these various scenarios of the growth environment that we're looking at. If I sample the team, we're going to have probably more bias to a recession at this point than just the soft landing. But there's also still the possibility for it. And is it predicated on a Fed cut? I don't know. I don't think the Fed's going to cut until it's too late at this point. I think banking on a Fed cut in the first half of next year is insane at this point. If anything, why do they do the next hike? If you're just going to hike the cut, I mean, that seems like you're over-engineering the process. And so at this stage, I think Jay said it for a while. It's been the unsaid thing, but he said it. It's that they want to get to a restricted level and they want to leave it there. What he's saying is that they want to get to the terminal rate and they don't want to have to hike again once they get there. And it may seem obvious, but it's important because they don't want to have the ills of what happened in the past where they declared victory and inflation too soon. So potentially the feds learn their lesson, but also have they learned all their lessons because the amount of hikes they put in the system were extremely quick. And they, they talk about long and variable lags. And I know there's a lot of people referencing this golden research on in his team this morning, where it's saying, well, the growth rate actually peaks like two quarters after the big rate hikes. And so it's not as fast or it's one to two quarters versus two to three. So it actually is faster than you think. But what if in this environment that because of just the amount of money that was sprayed around and people focus on the consumer, but also we sprayed around the corporate America, we gave them cheap terms, they did a lot of term finance, they extended maturities out. What if because there's less cash need out there and there's always the companies that need to raise capital in the marketplace. But in general, corporate America has turned out their financing over a long period. So what if because of that and this, this precipitous rate rise we saw, what if the lag is longer 
because you need to get the ramification of borrowing costs. And I've been floating that concept out to a lot of our clients and prospects out there and talking about this. And I look and say, yeah, but what about the consumer? Well, the consumer got money too. The consumer, if you think about their biggest interest expense, it's typically at home. The house is financed on a fixed rate in general in this country, at least roughly like 85, 90% of it is. What's the expensive part? Oh, the car market? Guess what? Car rates will stay low. Auto loans will stay low because they got an inventory problem as they're starting to get the new production out again. Also, car companies don't make money on selling cars. They make money on financing. So it tends to be a below market rate anyway. What are they, credit cards? Okay, so your credit card goes from 25% to 29%. Do you care? I mean, it's already usury practically there. Student loans, some of those will float and reset a little bit. But in general, it's not as much impact. Now, there's definitely savings have come down. This is the challenge that you'll see. But I'm a little bit nervous when Jay Powell says he likes to see the wage growth out there, but he doesn't think that the wage growth we have is consistent with 2% inflation. So he's like, I want you to keep your job. I just don't want you paid as much because that's what's going to drive inflation. And I don't think this is an environment where wage growth drove inflation, I think was the policies we pursued there. There's not very much there. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if I answered your question. I just got on a little rant about all of that as well. No, I love it. Talking about rates, what's your take on the dollar? I've heard you talk about our currency, your problem. It's ripped higher this year. And obviously that has ties to energy prices both here and abroad. So I'm curious your take on that. At this point, it does look like the dollar's peaked. My risk to the dollar of retesting that high is if we have a pretty calamitous recession. And if we have something that it looks like it's going to be a little more painful, you could definitely see that retesting that high. Maybe we don't get exactly to that level, and that would be a perfect sign to want to short the dollar. But I could see there being this flight to quality, demand for dollars, demand for treasuries, where people pile into that and force that dollar up again. And the thing that could fly in that face of that is, okay, maybe the ECB stays pat, the Fed has to cut. I just don't see the ECB staying more restrictive than the Fed to kind of support that thesis of the dollar still declining. And then we know the response mechanism, if we are mired in a recession, will be government spending. And we've been doing it on massive magnitudes. We've increased the magnitudes of percentage of GDP in each of the last three recessions. When you think about that, once again, I feel like the dollar has peaked. I could see a scenario where you get this last push up in the dollar. And I think if you do that, you definitely want to start to short it at some point. But right here, I just feel like we need some form of breakout here too. At least the ECB is playing along, the BOE is playing along, everybody's kind of moving in lockstep with the Fed. I think the Fed's closer to being done with their tightening regime than the other areas of the developed world, except probably potentially Japan, of course, which has been the lone wolf out there. But if you saw that too, that would augur for a slightly lower dollar here too, over kind of that near term. And so from that perspective, I'm kind of agnostic on it from the standpoint, our global teams have been circling it, they've been talking about it, haven't really put on any positions on the non-dollar trade, anything meaningful. And right now we're kind of looking for some directionality there. So it's kind of a wishy-washy answer. But I think at this point, as a dollar-based investor, I have no problem owning dollars. I don't want to get too excited about non-dollar assets today. You mentioned like commodity price. It's really amazing how well the commodity market has done this year in the face of that rip roaring dollar, which is something you typically don't see in a cycle. So one other thing that that could end up doing, as you said, the demand for dollars, 
is also you could end up with just another commodity boom next year. Again, this would fly face in all these recessionary calls, but I think a tail risk here is the China reopening and a restocking that could take place there. And if you bring some demand growth there, and we saw this through how bad industrial production was in China for the last few months with the zero COVID policy, if they really start to ratchet that up, you could see a demand for commodities kind of that next three to six months as well. So I'm thinking about ways of trying to insulate the portfolio from different ideas. So as an overall allocator, I think you don't want to give up on the commodity call. I don't think you want to own the same size you did this year. I think you need to own some of it for that. What happens under this reopening scenario and what happens if the inflation does stay a little more persistent there and that the Fed is not able to really achieve that soft landing. It could actually be with a blow off in commodities that drive that. Just think about what happened earlier this year. So what I'm hearing is if you couldn't take that vacation before internationally, now's probably a good time with your purchasing power with the dollar. And also as a dollar investor, I'm also hearing that there's not a ton of benefits of international diversification right now on the fixed income side, at least. It looks cheaper, but maybe you want to hedge it back a little bit in terms of the dollars is all I'm saying. So definitely on a valuation basis, the rest of the world looks a lot, not the rest of the world, but the bulk of the world, ex-US looks a lot cheaper than the US. Some cases it's for a reason, but also, this is some of the trade we've seen this year in terms of the value outperforming growth. A lot of the international markets tend to be more value-centric type of investments. And so you're starting to see that. But I don't think you should give up on the international diversification. I think it's still working. I don't know if you just want to be short inherently the dollar. I think you kind of want to own some of the hedge back at this point still. But again, I don't have an extremely strong view on the dollar and directionality right now which is why it's like, if you're going to do it, at least on the equity side, as an equity investor, your vol of the currency is like half the vol of the underlying investment in general. Maybe it's sometimes a third of the vol. In bond investing, it's like two to three X the vol of the underlying bonds. It may not feel like it near like this, but historically, that's the relationship. So there's kind of different perspectives as a bond investor versus an equity investor because of that volatility construct of the FX. As an Orlando Magic lifelong fan, the best part about getting an awful season being the worst team in the league is that expected returns improve the following year because you get a good draft pick. So in terms of this year, horrible year for returns, especially in fixed income. But the best part about that is in January, when you meet with your investors, you can say expected returns have improved. (laughs) So (laughs) from that standpoint... Can we talk a little bit about expected returns, both equities and fixed income and what you like over the next five years? No sort of Buffett bet or anything like that, one versus the other. Look, there's a book sitting on my desk that I bought that I thought it was very important. As you'd expect, who am I going to be reading? <laughs> it's Auntie and Ilmanan. And, and the title of that book was Investing Amid Low Expected Returns. And lo and behold, as I read it, all of a sudden, expected returns go up. So his timing couldn't have been worse in terms of writing that book, but the principles are still there. And going back to principles, I think what's important here too is to think about your conviction around things. And so let's just start with the bond market. If you want to lock up money for 12 months, you can get north of 4.5% today. They're called T-bills. So that's a number that you could not achieve via the high yield market 16 months ago. The high yield market yielded less than 4 And now we're talking about a government-guaranteed asset. Maybe your purchasing power gets eroded a little bit, but you at least know that's what you get. 
And then taking a bet along the yield curve, it goes down a little bit. And you can say, well, it's because you're locking in that certainty. And so as you start to think about that, okay, if that's what my risk-free gives me, then to take risk, obviously I need more. Do I sound like an academic all of a sudden? But the idea here is that one way of thinking about equities is just to invert that risk-free rate. You can argue that equities are a long-duration asset. They have more volatility. Maybe should we look at the long bond or something like that? Yes, real yields have some impact here too. But ultimately, if we're getting, let's just call it 4%, and that's a little high for the back end of the curve today. But if you're getting 4%, 4% risk-free is an equity multiple of 25% if there's no risk premium. So you invert the 4%. I'm dividing 100 divided by 4. That means it's a 25 multiple. So instead of PE, it's the EP. E over P is the earnings yield, blah, blah. Colby, you work with Mab. You know all about shareholder yield and all this stuff. So Very much so. It's tattooed on my back. I knew someone had it there. I wasn't sure who it was. <laughs> yeah, we've had Cliff on to talk this topic too. He's been dying to divulge that to the world. So that's assuming you would pay 25 earnings if it's risk-free. There needs to be some sort of premium out there. And so if we're talking about yields in these 4 to 5% range, the equity multiple probably should be lower than it is today. And not meaningfully lower, but lower because we've had a pretty strong risk rally, as I alluded to at the beginning, over this last six weeks or so. And so if you look at where earnings are and you slap on kind of like a 15 multiple, that gets you like to like roughly 3,600. Now, there's downside to earnings because... Again, the slowdown in the economy and the like, you could easily see the 3,000 S&P on that level. That's probably being a little too bearish to get to those levels. But I think easily you could see a trading range of the S&P 500 at least over the next six months of something as wide as 3,300 to like 4,250 or something like that. And that's because the E is going to be challenged. And people are talking about it, so you know it. I think what you're finding in terms of the expected returns, they were really looking somewhat comparable between bonds and stocks a couple of months ago. Now, the bond market still looks relatively reasonable. I think yields are a little tight here. They probably should push up a little bit. I'm not going to really take into any account what the trend looks like over the next two weeks. Let's get back to where everybody's back to their desk. Horrific year. I don't know how many bankers I've seen are on mandatory leave these last two weeks this year. Just like, get me the heck out of here. I think liquidity will be challenged for a little bit. And so therefore, don't read too much into it the next couple of weeks. When you look at the 10-year, let's say we're at 360-ish today. I look at corporate bonds, investment grade, they yield like five. It's not horrible because they're priced off a shorter part of the curve, which is a little bit higher than the 10-year. But if you got like a five yield there, it doesn't sound bad. It has a little recession risk. It has a lot of spread duration. You can shorten that up by going to high yield, but we know it has significantly more recession risk in the below investment grade. That market yields in the high sevens today. The spread is below average, or it's roughly average today. Average sure doesn't make me feel comfortable going to recession, but then rewind the clock what I said about corporate America. In a better position, there's been some deleveraging, the financing's locked up. So maybe spreads won't get as wide as they are. But I could easily see high yield spreads if we're in a mildish recession, easily get to 600 over instead of 450 today. And if we get more hiccups, it probably pushes to 800. That could be a combination of rates falling, yields staying roughly where they are a little bit. Obviously, you need some widening to get to 800. But it doesn't look as attractive as it was a few weeks ago. And it sounds really weird to say, how did the bond market go from being very screamingly cheap to, eh, 
Well, it's because there's been money piling into those sectors. The money flow in the last six weeks has flowed into high yield. It's flowed into investment grade. It's flowed into treasuries. And so people seem to be barbelling that trade, which I don't hate that trade. I hate as a standalone trade, the high yield right now. I don't think a marginal dollar should go there. I think spreads got too tight because of this behavior and this rally we saw in rates. But I do think from a standpoint of other pockets of credit, whether that's residential mortgage market, whether that's the commercial real estate market, whether it's the asset back market, they have not participated in this rally in the same magnitude. In fact, they've had about 20 to 25% of the move that you see in these other credit products. So that's the good thing about having multiple areas of the markets to look at. What we're saying is, okay, what is the disconnect here? One of these markets seems a little bit wrong. Right now, commercial real estate, there's still the challenge, as I said. There's a lot of overhead, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of headline risk. And so people are shying away. So that one makes a little bit more sense. But why these other parts of high quality assets haven't participated. And so I think it's just fun flow driven. There's not a lot of ETFs that specifically traffic in those. So investors can't go as quickly in and out of them as you see in some of the other products. But what I'm seeing from expected returns here is that the best way to start is expected yield. You already start with your yield. You can ding it for defaults throughout the cycle or whatever you think it's going to look like. And I think it's very easy to put a relatively high quality credit book together that has a six handle yield. And it's probably a high six handle. And if you want to get more aggressive, it can easily be eight and a half, nine percent. I don't think that anyone should just go do that trade. I think because of these burgeoning risk of the recession, with the imminent slowdown, with some of the risk to the E in corporate America, I think that what we should do is pair some of that with the treasury market. So what I would do is I want to own longer duration assets in the market. So if you start with something like the Bloomberg ad, like it or not, it's an investment grade index. It's kind of thought of as being the market. Its duration's around six years. The duration is driven more by the investment grade corporate bond market than it actually is by the government market. Corporate America refied, lower yields, longer duration. Then you have the mortgage side, which is a bit shorter than the market. So you get kind of six. That's where it sits. So if you think about spread duration or what drives the volatility of corporate spreads, the spread duration is going to look in investment grade. It doesn't have a lot of credit problems. It's going to look similar to the duration of an interest rate sensitive asset. So what that means is the spread duration of the ad is longer than what you would see as actually even the actual interest rate duration too. So what I want to own in this environment right now is high quality credit. I want to own it with shorter duration than the market, both interest rate and spread duration. I want the spread duration shorter because I want it to not be as sensitive to what's going on in the economic activity. And if you're right, you do better even in a downturn with shorter spread duration than longer spread duration. That's just the definition of it. But I want to own my duration longer than the market. So what I have is a barbell in that direction. And this is again, via the bottom-up views, as well as kind of our top-down thinking, is that we want to own longer key rate duration on the interest rate side. I want to own it in the real areas of the market that can rally, things like agency MBS, which in some instances, as long as you have the right coupons and stuff, can really work well. Treasuries, the old-school risk-off trade, I think it works at these levels if we go into a recession. I think rates are too high if it's a recession. And But at the same time, because of what credit's offering us, I don't want to give up the ghost on that either. What if we muddle along? What if we continue to grind along? What if Jay and crew are right? They're going to get to those levels. They hold it there. It just slows us down enough. 
and a lot of the pains behind us. So unless you have a better sense of that outlook today, I think you want to own both sides of the trade. And by doing so, I don't think you want to own long duration treasuries with investor grade corporate bonds because those investor grade corporate bonds still have a lot of duration. But I think you want to own shorter duration credit. You still want to own a few things that float. You've got to be careful about the floater. You've got to make sure that the underlying borrower can hit those reset costs. It's the opposite of what we're talking about in the investor grade market. There are some signs the bank loan market is starting to show some stress in it as well. That may bleed over a little bit to the lower quality CLOs, but it's not going to hurt the triple A's. Yeah, spreads can widen. You may lose a point or two in the mark to market, but it's not like you're going to have a disaster like owning energy in 2015 or early 2016. So what I'm trying to get back to in saying all of this is that when I think about the expected returns, I think it's easy to put a forecast together that says, I think I can start with a six, all in, roughly in my portfolio, high fives, low sixes. And if this directionality, it starts to materialize, you have the ability to rotate as well. So you can make money on these positions. Even if credit widens and we're going to recession, if my long duration bets are paying off, they'll more than offset that weakness that we've seen in credit because the dollar price of those bonds are already beaten up. We get into a lot of like weird math stuff here. It's kind of what bonds are. But you start with the expected return question. Don't forget, Steve. That's on me. The thing is, is that if you can own that, you always got to own some equity. I think you want to be up in quality here too. I don't think you want to be dumpster diving. Don't do the meme trade. And don't think if rates come back, the tech's just going to rip again. You've got to be patient with the equity book. I think you should own a little bit of the international. I'm okay with not hedging it as long as you're doing it. On the other side, you're hedging your bond book. But I can see this being a year where the bond portfolio, and again, if it plays out right, the trading of it, and if you have this direction of recession, you're able to buy credit a lot cheaper. I think you have the ability to do single digits this year. If we muddle along in rates, you earn carry. If we muddle along, spreads probably tighten in a little bit. So you make money on those. Then you continue to increase the quality because... We're probably getting closer and closer to the recession. So I think this is not a set it and forget it time. It hasn't been post pandemic. It sure felt like it for the first 12 months or so in the equity market. But at this stage, the equity multiple looks a little rich. I don't like the trading range of where it's at today. And so I'm a little more reticent on that. Now, you said five years, five years, who knows what the world looks like over that period in time. And so again, this is why you still need to own some of those assets. And then again, probably everybody that's listening here, Steve, does own some private equity and stuff. Thank goodness for that. The mark to myth that it's at right today. And it won't have to catch up for a while. And so be thankful you have some of that. The reason you bought it was because it saved you from yourself. I just think the expected returns, they're significantly higher from the bond market. If you're a bargain shopper in credit and you know how to traffic it, I think the credit markets can do significantly better than the stock market in the next couple of years. And that's because there's a lot of bonds that trade at 60 that still look money good. They have risk. They still have 15, 20 points of downside. They're not meant for the run of the mill bond strategy. But as a down in quality credit investor, I do think that that has the ability to very significantly compete with the equity market in today's environment. Well, that was a nice little peek we got behind the curtain into the double line process and thoughts at the moment. I want to be cognizant of your time and wrap up here, but obviously double line is a well-known firm and want to pay homage to someone very well-known and what they like to do from double line. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know. We got a lot of famous people at double line. I think the most well-known is Jeffrey Gunlock, maybe. 
I'm sorry. It's Sam Lau, and it's time for Sherman Says to wrap up the episode. Oh, First of all, how dare you? How dare you? How dare but you? We're going to play a quick game of Sherman Says before we wrap. And listeners, go download to the Sherman Show on your podcast player, and you know what we'll talk about. But the game is, I say a topic to each person, and they answer. So I'll start with Sherman here. I'll say a topic. He'll give me the first thing that comes into his head, and then I'll go back to Steve. Are we ready? Yeah, I didn't bring my Sherman show mugs. I would have put in a cheap plug for that, but you served it well. So thanks, Colby. Yeah, well, Sam is going to be very disappointed when he hears this on the 5th. No, you know what he's going to do? He's going to say, why don't you and Colby do the show? He's always <laughs> trying to get out of it. <laughs> I know his personality well enough that it's that will blow up in my face. So I'm not going to talk about this. <laughs> All right. Well, first one is for Sherman, and it's Jay Powell's grade. Grade? Grade. Which semester? It was like a D and an F. The markets may not feel like it, but I think he's doing the right thing. It's kind of a B here, but he needs to slow down or he's going to get back to that D and F again. Well, we're a state school grad, so C's get degrees. Steve, financial education. Mandatory. Sherman, Florida. Man. <laughs> well, that got my next one. Steve, Florida man. <laughs> Glad FTX founder is in the Bahamas, <laughs> not here. That's a good That's one. a great <laughs> one. I'm surprised. He's not from here. Sherman, inflation stabilizes at? It's instable, so it can't. Steve, entrepreneurship. Only way you can access your true potential, not for everyone, though. Sherman, Brock Purdy. Huh. 13's <laughs> a lucky number, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Everybody that listens to my stuff knows uh, I say Jimmy G is super underrated. He's a much better quarterback than everyone gives him credit for. I thought he was doing a good job, but... You put CMC in that offense, even Brock Purdy can run it. So just be consistent, deliver the ball. Man, we got seven in a row now. Steve, crypto. I'm a big Niner fan. I just wanted to say I appreciated all those comments Sherman just made. And Mr. Irrelevant being the quarterback into the playoffs is huge. Not dodging Bitcoin, though. No, real quick, though, too. We have a guy on our staff that went to Iowa State, too. He's going to say, I told you so, told you so, all this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So pro blockchain tech against centralized crypto brokers. Their whole schematic is being decentralized and they keep trading through centralized brokers and getting upset about it. But if you're starting one, go ask Kevin O'Leary for funding because he's still interested. You also have to pay him $15 million to get him to promote it to start so that maybe part of that was pushed back into it. So hey, being a paid spokesman makes you a venture capitalist, apparently. Okay. <laughs> Sherman, ESG. Man. I think it's just a hot button topic, man. Just watching those guys go through getting grilled in the Texas legislature last week. I mean, it's like, wow, it's just too political. It means well, it's well healed, but man, it's gotten a little out of control, it sure feels like. All right, Steve, last one, Markel Fultz. Five in a row. Done. Everyone go subscribe to The Sherman Show on your favorite podcast app. It's a great podcast, tons of great guests, and you can follow Sherman along on LinkedIn and the Double Line website. Sherman, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, gentlemen. It was a pleasure and great to finally get on the Investors First podcast. Thanks again, guys. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty 
as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023 Double Line Capital.